Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. When the full weight and force of the United States ultimately comes down on Russia, it's going to be devastating. And it may not come while Trump is president. Maybe it does. But it will come because that's the way everybody else feels. That's Bill Browder, an activist and campaigner for justice in Russia. Since we first spoke in October, Vladimir Putin called him out by name at the Helsinki summit. Bill is back to talk about Putin's personal attacks and President Trump's flirtation with handing over Bill and other Americans to the Russian regime. This is a good one, folks. But first, let's get to your questions. So we're taping this Q&A at lunchtime on Wednesday, August 1st. And the first question comes in the wake of a tweet that Donald Trump sent just a little while ago as I was coming to the studio. This is what the president of the United States tweeted just now. Quote, This is a terrible situation, and Attorney General Jeff Sessions should stop this rigged witch hunt right now before it continues to stain our country any further. Bob Mueller is totally conflicted, and his 17 angry Democrats that are doing his dirty work are a disgrace to USA! Exclamation mark. So that's the President of the United States saying in a tweet that Attorney General Jeff Sessions should stop this rigged witch hunt right now. And the question from Twitter user uh, at IndivisibleMitch is, Is that tweet obstruction of justice? So a lot of people are asking that question, and that's reasonable, given how sort of even more extreme than usual Donald Trump's tweet is. He's literally saying on his favorite social media platform that the attorney general should stop their rigged witch hunt. So I have a few observations about it before I get to the ultimate question of whether or not that sort of by itself or in combination with other things is obstruction. First of all, Attorney General Jeff Sessions is recused from the Russia investigation, So it should not be up to him to decide to stop it or not or interfere with it in any way. The other thing I'll say about the irony of the tweet is the basis on which Donald Trump says, at least in this social media post, that the investigation should be shut down is based on Bob Mueller's alleged conflict. So on the one hand, he doesn't believe that Jeff Sessions should be recused and that he should be able to shut down the investigation. On the other hand, based on, I think, not very good reasoning, and just generalized anger about the investigation, he thinks Bob Mueller is conflicted and should be recused and shouldn't be allowed to continue. So let me say just a word about how that works. Both Jeff Sessions and Bob Mueller went through the normal, um, somewhat bureaucratic, but ethical process for career people in the Justice Department to make a determination about whether or not there were conflicts and whether or not it was appropriate for the particular men, Sessions and Mueller, to oversee particular investigations. In the case of Jeff Sessions, to his credit, he abided by the determination by career people in the Justice Department that given his close association with the campaign, that he should not be involved in the Russia investigation because he was part of the campaign that would be investigated for potential, what people like to say, collusion or conspiracy of coordinating with the Russians. Similarly, as has been reported many, many times, although we don't know all the details, 
Bob Mueller went through a similar process to make sure that within the department, given the fact that his prior law firm represented some people who might come within the purview of the investigation, like Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, a determination was made by you know, independent, professional, career people at the Justice Department that there was no conflict, or if there was, the department would waive it in the interests of justice. So Donald Trump likes to rail about this issue of conflict, but the career folks have decided that there is none. My next observation is, you know, it is an odd way to be directing people in your Justice Department, uh, rather than pick up the phone and issuing a directive, to be doing it on Twitter. So, so on the one hand, I understand why people are immediately worried that this is in fact a directive to the Attorney General to do X or Y. But on the other hand, it's also part of a generalized strategy that Trump has adopted of signaling to his base that the investigation is terrible, that it's unethical, that it is not to be valued, that the people who are involved are biased in some particular way. And it's, you know, whether or not it is evidence of obstruction, it is certainly part of an orchestrated PR campaign for his base and for other people to undermine whatever future conclusion they would be. It is particularly bizarre to be doing this in the context of it being the second day of the trial in the Eastern District of Virginia in the first case that Bob Mueller has brought against Paul Manafort, Donald Trump's former campaign chairman. Uh, Next observation. As we've said on the show before, the Mueller investigation is sort of looking at three things. One is whether there was an attack on America with respect to the election in 2016. Second, whether or not there was any coordination or conspiracy on the part of people in the Trump campaign with the Russians. And then third, obstruction. With respect to the first, the intelligence community, members of Congress, and the indictments all clearly show that there was interference with our election in 2016. And so when Donald Trump says, shut down this rigged witch hunt, uh, it's unclear what that means. There is a trial, as I said, in progress. There are other people who have pled guilty. There are other investigations that may not even touch upon Donald Trump that are appropriate and are underway. And I don't see any reason at all why those investigations should be shut down. So it's an outrageous comment directive on that ground alone. So finally, the, the ultimate question that you that is asked, is this tweet obstruction of justice? Well, for something to be obstruction, you have to prove corrupt intent. And so my view is that in combination with other things, certainly a picture of obstruction is painted a little bit more clearly when you take the context in which this tweet has been sent. Time and time again, the president has made clear he doesn't like to be in jeopardy. He doesn't like the Russian investigation to continue. That part of the reason he fired Jim Comey, as he told Lester Holt, was to stop the Russia investigation. And so he has had this intent, it seems, from surrounding evidence to want it to go away because people around him and he himself might be in legal jeopardy. Of course, in the text of the tweet itself, Donald Trump cites to a arguably neutral reason, uh, separate and apart from self-protection, as to why he wants the Mueller investigation to be shut down. He talks about Bob Mueller being totally conflicted. The problem with that is that we have seen time and time again that the president is not above at all using pretextual reasons to engage in certain actions. So remember when Jim Comey was fired last year, he had Rod Rosenstein write that absurd memo, which you may or may not agree with, that Jim Comey was fireable on the ground that he had treated Hillary Clinton unfairly. But no reasonable person believes, and the president by his own words has even belied, the idea that Jim Comey was fired because of this other reason. And so here, if someone is going to make the case 
that Donald Trump obstructed justice. You can't do it based on this tweet by itself, but by stitching together other statements of the president, the context in which these statements were made, and other information that we probably don't know about yet based on interviews, and ultimately, potentially what the president might say in his own interview, you begin to paint, I think, a much clearer picture that there was an intent to obstruct. But as I've said many, many times, I don't believe, even if there is clear proof beyond a reasonable doubt, that Donald Trump obstructed justice, that Bob Mueller is going to bring an indictment against the sitting president because of the prevailing legal view put forward by the Office of Legal Counsel within the Department of Justice that a sitting president cannot be indicted. So at most, what you might see Bob Mueller do is sort of recite the facts, cite to these tweets, cite to other conversations, cite to interviews, uh, make clear the context and the timing of all of these statements and the circumstantial evidence of intent in a report that Congress will ultimately see. And so, you know, the more Donald Trump says things like this, it seems to me the more likely it is that Congress at some point will take up the issue in proceedings. And so it doesn't matter as much what I think or what you think, but it's what members of Congress think. And members of Congress, in the wake of this tweet, are already weighing in on whether or not they see it as evidence of obstruction or not. So that's the biggest problem for Donald Trump. This next question also comes from Twitter from Fishnerd. Fishnerd asks, just read that the jury for Manafort was seated in about half a day. Is that surprisingly quick for this kind of trial or just typical for the hashtag rocket docket? Thanks for your question. So just to remind everyone, Paul Manafort is the first person to go to trial in connection with the Russia investigation being conducted by the special counsel, Robert Mueller. It's actually the first of two trials for Paul Manafort. The first one taking place now in the Eastern District of Virginia. Next trial taking place later in the year in September in the District of Columbia. And the reason for the two trials is that venue was only proper for some of these counts in the Eastern District of Virginia. And Paul Manafort and his lawyers chose not to waive the right to have a separate trial there. I'm not sure how wise that was because now he's got to deal with you know, trials in two places. And, and the government has two bites of the apple. But be that as it may, it is pretty quick. It depends on the judge. Jury selection typically in high-profile cases can can take a few days, uh, and sometimes even in simple cases can take a few days depending on how willing a judge is to let people off or to find cause to remove people from the jury pool. So this suggests that the, the court lives up to its name, the rocket docket. The indication given from the government is that the trial would take about three weeks. The judge said in this case that that's fine, but he'd like to get it done in two. My prediction is it will get done in two because <laughs> the judge is sort of the king of his domain. And even though there have been lots and lots of discussions about the number of exhibits and the number of witnesses and the complexity of the case, at the end of the day, it's actually not so complex. There's a series of charges essentially related to concealment of income through tax fraud and bank fraud. And a lot of those things are fairly cut and dry. The idea that you're supposed to reveal to the IRS if you have an interest in a foreign bank account is kind of straightforward. You either revealed it or you didn't. And questions as to whether or not you had a reason not to reveal it, or you didn't know you had to reveal it, I don't think take a lot of witness testimony to get to. You're going to see, I think, as you as you read the news, some fireworks, probably, with respect to the testimony of Rick Gates. Rick Gates uh, was one of Paul Manafort's right-hand men, both in the campaign and also at their lobbying business. He, you will recall, was charged at the same time that Paul Manafort was, but Rick Gates flipped, an issue we talk about a lot in the show, and decided in hopes of future leniency from a judge to testify against Paul Manafort. In an opening statements yesterday, predictably, 
the defense lawyer for Paul Manafort decided to do what defense lawyers do, which is attack the cooperating witness as a liar, as someone who's trying to save his own skin. And we'll see if it works. My prediction is not, because it sounds like Rick Gates will be very, very corroborated by documentary evidence, and he's sort of there to tell the story, but we'll see when he testifies. One last point on Paul Manafort and how he's been treated. As we talked about on the podcast, I think a couple of weeks ago, he's been treated very well, considering that he violated the terms of his release, even though he's been remanded to custody. He had a lot of occasion to meet with his lawyers. He had a laptop. He himself, by his own admission, said that he was treated like a VIP in jail. Notwithstanding any of that, Donald Trump decided to weigh another trial, because why not? What else does he have to do? And tweeted a little while ago this morning, quote, looking back on history, who is treated worse? Alphonse Capone, using the whole name, legendary mob boss, killer, and public enemy number one, or Paul Manafort, political operative and Reagan Dole darling, now serving solitary confinement, although convicted of nothing. Where is the Russian collusion? That's a mishmash of non sequiturs <laughs> um, that make absolutely no sense at all. When Donald Trump says, looking back on history, he should maybe try that before tweeting about criminal defendants. Hello, Preet. This is Meryl, and I'm calling from New York. And I'm, I've heard lots of journalists on television and radio suggesting that we read the indictments that have come down, especially about the Russians. And I'm wondering, where do you go to read those indictments? Thank you. Thanks, Meryl. And I think, look, it's a really good point. I think that if you really want to understand what's going on, it's fine to listen to a podcast. It's fine to listen to the pundits on television. But you really get a feel for what's going on in detail rather than in soundbite by reading the documents themselves. And by the way, many of these documents are actually very well written uh, and tell a story. It's not just you know, all legal terms and jargon. And it's well worth your time to look at them. Typically, because we're in the age of the internet, anytime you see a story pop up about a new indictment or a guilty plea or some other such development in the Mueller investigation, usually in the typical New York Times article or Wall Street Journal article or Washington Post article, there's a link to the document. Um, but I would also like to put in a plug for our very good friend Ben Wittes and his Lawfare blog. If you go to lawfareblog.com, the commentary on that site is usually excellent and usually pretty quick and deeper than what you see in um, you know, mainstream newspapers. And they will also have the documents that you can read directly. My guest this week is Bill Browder. He first came on the show in October to talk about the murder of his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, and what Bill has done to seek justice for his friend. Since that time, a lot's happened. At the recent Helsinki summit, Vladimir Putin specifically and personally asked for Bill to be handed over to Russia, a request that President Trump called an incredible offer. I speak with Bill about what's changed for him, for our country, and for the world. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by ZipRecruiter. So I just finished a draft of my book, and let me tell you, doing that alone was neither fun nor easy. Working with a team is a much better way to go. And ZipRecruiter is the best place to find a team that works for you. Their matching technology and easy-to-use website make hiring simple, fast, and smart. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Preet. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash P-R-E-E-T. 
ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Stay tuned to Supported by Burrow. So way back when I was a student, I had a series of hideous and lumpy couches. I even had a futon. Over the years, I've upgraded to more comfortable and less ugly living room furniture. But I just made a new upgrade to an armchair from Burrow. Burrow brings style and comfort to a whole new level and ships to your door fast and free. Your relationship with your couch, or chair in my case, will never be the same. Burrow chairs and sofas are ergonomically designed, so I'll be comfortable while I shout at, I mean watch, the news. Personally, I ordered a charcoal chair. You can customize the color, size, even armrest height, and leg color. Shipping is fast and free, unlike the rest of the furniture industry. Also, fun fact, it has a built-in USB charger, which is handy since you may have noticed that I like to tweet. Enjoy 30 days of cozy on your comfortable burrow, risk-free, or try out burrow at one of their partner showrooms today. Customize your own burrow and get $75 off your order by going to burrow.com slash preet. That's B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash preet for $75 off your purchase. Burrow makes the luxury couch for real life. Bill Browder, welcome back to the show. This is the Bill Browder sequel. Thanks for being with us. Great to be here. So I, you know, I will say we had you on the show many months ago. And the news about Russia and the news about you and the news about the Magnitsky Act has only gotten more important. And the other thing I wanted to tell you is I, I don't think there was another episode that we've done of the show that resonated more with, with listeners. I can't tell you how many people have said to me how much they appreciated the education that you gave them about Sergei Magnitsky and about oligarchs in Russia and about Putin and his conduct. So I want to thank you again for, for coming on and, and telling the story. Well, it's been my pleasure, and, and thank you for highlighting this story because it's just so important that everybody knows what's really going on with Magnitsky and Putin and, and how this forms a crucial part of the whole geopolitics of Russia right now. For those you know, three or four people in the globe that are listening now but who didn't listen to the first episode, can you do like a 90-second like a summary of who Sergei Magnitsky was, why he was important, and what the law does that you've helped pass in multiple countries. So Sergei Magnitsky was my lawyer in Russia. Sergei discovered a massive Putin crony corruption scheme uh, where they were stealing $230 million of taxes that I had paid to the Russian government from the Russian government. Sergei took that information as a, as a Russian patriot. He exposed it. He testified against the corrupt officials involved. And instead of treating him as a hero, the Russian government arrested him. They put him in pretrial detention. They tortured him for 358 days, and they killed Sergei Magnitsky on November 16, 2009, at the age of 37. And since then, I've been on a mission to get justice for Sergei, um, which resulted in something named after Sergei called the Magnitsky Act, which is a piece of legislation first passed in the United States in 2012 which imposes visa sanctions and asset freezes on the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky and the people who do similar types of human rights abuses in Russia. And Vladimir Putin really hates that because Vladimir Putin is a man who does human rights abuses and he has a lot of assets in the West, including the United States. And so you put his assets at how much? I estimate he's worth $200 billion, which makes him the richest man in the world. And in order to keep that money safe, he doesn't keep it in Russia. He keeps it in American banks and British banks and in real estate and 
Switzerland and France and other places. And he feels, and he, he's right to feel this way. He feels vulnerable uh, because his money may end up getting seized and frozen. And that's been, that's been the objective of my campaign. And I believe, and his, his own behavior demonstrates it, that we found his Achilles heel, which is this, which is the Magnitsky Act. He certainly, he certainly hates your guts. He does. Which we'll talk about. And he mentions you by name whenever he, whenever he can. But this, first, I want to I just explore more on how successful your campaign has been on the Magnitsky Act. So it passed in the United States by an overwhelming margin. How many countries now have some version of the Magnitsky Act? So the Magnitsky Act passed on December 14th, 2012, or I should say it was signed into law on December 14th, 2012 in the United States under Obama, passed 92 to 4 in the Senate, 89% of the House of Representatives. We then got Canada to impose their version of the Magnitsky Act, and that passed unanimously in in their uh, House of Commons and unanimously in their Senate and became law in October of 2017. We then ended up with Lithuania. Latvia, Estonia, and most recently, Britain, United Kingdom, uh, along with Gibraltar. And so there's now seven countries that have Magnitsky Acts. And as of right now, there are nine countries, parliaments, that are now debating and introducing Magnitsky Acts. And that includes a number of countries in Europe, France, uh, Germany, Sweden, Denmark, Holland. Then we have Australia, which is which got something cooking, South Africa, uh, Ukraine, and just two days ago, um, Moldova, without any intervention from me, um, the Moldovan parliament introduced a Magnitsky Act. And so there's nine countries on deck. It looks very promising that we'll get a bunch more signed up soon. And what's the big get for you? Well, the, the key for me is France. Why France? France is where every self-respecting kleptocrat from Russia has a villa they have their villas in Saint-Tropez, in Cap Ferrat, Cap d'Antibes, and of course, apartments in Paris. And so if we get France, it will really just hit these guys right between the eyes. Right. It has an actual practical effect. By the way, what, what percentage of Russian oligarchs are self-respecting? <laughs> well, that, I, I don't know if they respect themselves, but they certainly value themselves. And, they, and more, moreover, they get respect from their properties. And so if we take those properties away from them, um, there's no way to make these people more infuriated, mad, and, and exposed. Who were the people who were antagonistic towards the Magnitsky Act in some of these countries, including France? Is it people who benefit financially from the spending by the oligarchs? Yeah. So, so I mean, we had a long, drawn-out fight in the UK, and we finally got the Magnitsky Act passed. But there was a huge group of people, and you could almost see them physically, because all these oligarchs were spending so much money in London, they were buying these huge villas and houses in, in central London. So the real estate agents and then the lawyers who help them buy the properties and, and the people who run the boutiques and all the concierges and car dealers and, and all these people, it's, it's not a big part of the economy, but they're all very visible and they're all very close to parliament. And they were all fighting like hell to make sure that this thing didn't happen. And it was only after the Skripal poisoning, when, when effectively it was determined that the Russian government it was involved in a in a terrorist attack using chemical weapons that the government couldn't argue against it anymore and, and we got it passed but there's a lot of like particularly in France and then Germany which is the other big prize um but in those countries there's a lot of russian money flowing into a lot of different places and so there's those people who get that money don't want to stop you know getting eggs from the golden goose and so they're they're all 
arguing against it. And, and it's, a, it's a tough fight. The more countries in which you get it passed, I'm guessing that eases the way in other countries? Very much so. And so after I got the U.S. to pass a Magnitsky Act, it took a long time before the next one. So we, we got the first U.S. in 2012, and it took till 2017 to get Canada. And part of the reason for that is that if I go to another country and say, listen, the U.S. is doing this, you should too. And and there's a lot of people who say, well, you know, U.S. is really sort of a you know unilateral country that's out there sort of flexing its muscles. I don't know. But when I say, well, Canada's done it, Right. <laughs> Our very nice neighbors to the north, right? <laughs> I mean, to put it simply, you know, there's lots of people who are like anti-American out in the rest of the world, but the, I've never never encountered anybody who's anti-Canadian. And and so Have you have you met Donald Trump? <laughs> well, <laughs> so he's, there you he's go. He's been he's been casting aspersions on our friends to the, to the north in, in recent times. He's the first. So, is that the principal work that you do these days to try to get the Magnitsky Act passed? I I've got sort of two jobs. I'm a full-time activist, a full-time justice activist. One of my activism jobs is to get the Magnitsky Act passed, and I would say that that takes up a majority of the time. And the second thing which I'm doing is I'm tracing the money, the $230 million that Sergei Magnitsky discovered and was exposed and was killed over. I'm tracing that money to countries. We have a team of forensic investigators here that I manage, and we've been doing this for eight and a half years. And when I, when I find the money, we file very detailed criminal complaints with the law enforcement agencies of those countries. We try to convince those countries to open criminal investigations, to freeze the money, and to prosecute the people who benefited from it. And since we started that process, we've found the money. I think I would say more or less we found all the money. We've traced it to about 26 different countries. There are now 15 live investigations going on around the world. And not only does this expose the the crime that Sergei Magnitsky was killed over, but we've effectively exposed the entire Putin money laundering pipe to the West and a lot of other illicit funds have flowed through those pipes. And and to the extent that Putin is mad at me, he's probably equally mad about the Magnitsky Act and the fact that there are now 15 live investigations going on about his dirty money around the world. Right. When Vladimir Putin rails against the Magnitsky Act and, you know, hollers about it and then invokes you, does that actually help your cause? Although it may not be personally pleasant for you, does that end up backfiring on him and helping your cause? Big time, big time. And so people often ask me, well, so like, who's the best advocate for your cause in the world? And my answer is real simple, is Vladimir Putin. I mean, so, so why does, know, so he's, a, I mean, I think we've established that he's a, at least some people think he's a clever guy and strategically and tactically smart. So why does he do it? Well, um, I think you're, you're overestimating him a bit, um, or people are overestimating him a bit. He's not stupid for sure, but he's not strategic. He's very tactical. And he's also very emotional and very reflexive. And so there's a thing that goes on in Russia, which is like, you know, if you do something, they have to do something back to you. It's just like nobody can like wait quietly for their next move. And so everything we do sort of provokes a reaction and every reaction that we provoke ends up creating more sympathy for the cause, more awareness of the cause. I mean, after Putin mentioned me in, in Helsinki, I started getting phone calls from politicians in, in European countries that I've been working on all saying, you know, Putin has showed his cards. We now know how much he cares about this to the extent that anyone was questioning the efficacy of the Magnitsky Act. <laughs> if he's bringing you up and he's bringing up Magnitsky, then then it's obviously a good thing. How do we get moving on this thing? No, I think absolutely. Look, when you mentioned on the show last time that it gets under Putin's skin, I'm sure that some listeners were skeptical and thought, well, it sounds very self-important <laughs> on Bill Browder's part. How do you know he's a powerful person 
He leads a you know decent-sized country. As you have said, he has you know $200 billion potentially in holdings around the world. So how can this get under his skin? And then when he affirms that and makes it obviously true, it gives you a lot of credibility. I tell you something really funny is that I, I got a lot of um, a lot of phone calls from journalists before the summit, kind of coming to me as a person who knows Putin well, as a Russian expert, a commentator. You know, they're asking me questions and so on. And sort of a couple of days before the summit, I was thinking about p- putting out a tweet, which I had actually even drafted, saying, "I wonder if Vladimir Putin's going to bring up my name at the summit." And I, I wrote it out on Twitter, and then I thought, you know. I, I then erased it because I thought, you know what, that just sounds so self-centered and, and self-important. People are going to really make fun of me. And it's actually kind of better that he mentioned your name, as lawyers would say, sua sponte, just without provocation. I mean, it's not without provocation. I actually did provoke him, and I should point this out. Wait, so you didn't send the tweet. You slid into his DMs. Is that what happened? So I didn't send the tweet. And, and this wasn't, wasn't particularly intentional, but, but Time Magazine got in touch with me a couple days before the summit and said, you know, you, you, you want to write something about the summit and your feelings about it. I said, yeah, sure. And so I wrote a letter to Donald Trump, an open letter to Donald Trump saying, dear President Trump, let me tell you a few things about Vladimir Putin. And I put a bunch of things in. I said that he's um, a liar, a bald faced liar. He's a cold blooded killer. He doesn't negotiate. He will lie to you. He'll trick you, et cetera, et cetera. And I put all this into this letter. And then one of my guys said, well, you know, we, we should probably translate this into Russian. And so we translated it into Russian, and I uh, I put it on the Echo Moscow radio blog, which is like one of the last places where you can actually put stuff that's not favorable to Putin. And it it got something like four hundred thousand or maybe more downloads, which is which is like a record for this blog. And I'm sure that someone in Putin's camp saw it, and I think that that I think they were intending to bring me up in the private meeting with Trump, but they got so Putin um, got so provoked by this that he decided to like lash it back out at me, which is why he brought me up in the public meeting, which, as we've agreed, is quite helpful to my cause. Right. So let's talk about Helsinki for another minute. Um, that's where President Donald Trump met with Vladimir Putin. They were alone together for, I think, you know, two hours plus. Do you have any doubt that, well, I guess we don't have any doubt because it's been mentioned after the fact, but you know, what, what, what amount of that time do you think they were talking about you and the Magnitsky Act? Um, I think that they, that they probably spent a majority of the time talking about me and the Magnitsky Act. Um, and again, that may sound self-important, but this is something that really, truly upsets Putin. And, and we can look back over history and say, you know, this wasn't the first time that, that they brought me and the Magnitsky Act up. If you remember, and this is all in code, but in, in, in Hamburg at the G20 meeting in July of 2017, um, Trump had a, had a di- big dinner with all the other heads of state. Trump went over to Putin and they sat down and talked for, for quite a while and then when Trump was asked whether they talk about, it, he said adoptions. Right, which is code for the Magnitsky Act. Yes, Russian adoptions were what were banned in reaction to Magnitsky, and, and neither of them were talking about adoptions. They were talking about me and Magnitsky. And then a year before that, Natalia Veselnitskaya, the famous Russian lawyer, on behalf of the Russian government, was in Trump Tower, uh, meeting with Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort, talking about again about me and Magnitsky and so this has been going on uh, for quite a while this is not this is a real obsession of Putin's and and I'm quite confident that that a majority of the time was spent talking about me and, and Magnitsky and furthermore by the way so the day after the summit when uh, Putin brought me up in relation in relation to, to a swap of me versus these 12 GRU agents which were indicted in the Mueller investigation, so the day afterwards, 
Uh, the Russians then said, we have a whole bunch of other people we would like to be swapped as well. And they made a list of people. And on that list, the top of the list was Mike McFall, the former US ambassador to Russia. Right. And then you had a whole bunch of other people, Kyle Parker, who was the person in the um, US Senate who drafted the Magnitsky Act, Bob Otto, a senior State Department intelligence officer who verified all the facts of the Magnitsky Act. Uh, you had David Kramer, former US State Department official who was at Freedom House, who helped me lobby for the Magnitsky Act. Uh, Jonathan Weiner, another former State Department official who conceived of the Magnitsky Act. And then three members of the Department of Homeland Security, three special agents of the Department of Homeland Security who investigated the money laundering from the crime that Sergei Magnitsky had exposed that came to New York. Right. And so everybody on the list was somehow connected to Magnitsky. Right. Making it very clear that that's what's foremost on Vladimir Putin's mind. Let me ask you this. So you were not in Helsinki. Were you watching the public press conference meeting at which your name was mentioned, or did you go back and watch that later? So what happened was I was actually um, on vacation. I was beginning my next book, and I had sort of tried to isolate myself in a quiet place where I could focus with my computer. And I, and I was sitting there, in my, and I had my phone face down, and um, it just started vibrating. My phone just kept on vibrating and vibrating, and I, and I, I was sort of really tempted not to look at it because I was trying to concentrate, but it just wouldn't stop. And so I turned it over and there was just a whole bunch of missed calls and a whole bunch of notifications on Twitter and text messages all saying, Bill, have you watched the summit? Have you, you realize what's going on? And at that point I logged into the summit and, and I had an opportunity to watch it after the fact. So, so what did you, so you watch it and you hear him invoke your name in front of the world. First, was that surprising to you? Was it upsetting to you? Did you think, strategically, as we've been discussing, this is going to be helpful to me in the cause that I'm pursuing. What, what was your reaction in the moment? Well, so I had, I had two different reactions. <clears throat> My reaction to Putin was, this is not surprising. This is like the fifth time he's, he's mentioned me in public. The, the thing that I did find a little surprising and a little upsetting was the fact that Trump didn't shoot him down right there and then and said, that's ridiculous. We're not going to do that. Far from it. <laughs> he made reference to something being an incredible offer. What did you understand Trump was referring to when he said incredible offer? So the the trade was, Putin said, okay, um, Mueller has indicted these 12 GRU agents. We'll give Mueller access to those agents. In return, we would like to have access to Bill Browder and a bunch of American government officials and intelligence officers who we believe are part of the Bill Browder criminal group. That was the incredible offer that was being proposed. And to add insult to injury, when this was then discussed at a press conference with uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, a few days later, the, uh, the New York Times asked her, well, are you going to do that deal? And, they said, and she said, well, we're, we're considering it. Right. We have no announcement on that at this moment. Separate and apart from you, the, the implications of such a thing go far beyond you and, and Ambassador McFall and others. It means basically that this administration, at least for a while, made it appear that, and maybe it's still true, made it appear that they would consider swaps of American citizens, and perhaps UK citizens like you are, to a, a murderous, thuggish regime based on no evidence. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's abhorrent. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's beyond, beyond anything I could have ever imagined. I, now, I never believed that it would actually go through, even if he wanted it to, because the rule of law in the United States on, on so many different levels would prevent it. 
but the fact that he thought it was a good idea and the fact that he didn't reject it outright was quite disturbing in terms of his own judgment about this whole thing. I mean, the most important condemnation of that came the next day when the Senate voted unanimously, 98 to zero, to reject this this offer. They don't vote unanimously on anything anymore. So I asked you this question last time. I know you've been asked this a lot. How much do you worry about your own personal safety? And has that worry increased or remained constant over time? The perception is that, that my risk has gone up. The reality is that my risk has always been high. I've known for a long time how infuriated Putin is with me and how much I've gotten under his skin. And and so I've been at, at, in a sort of danger zone for a long time now. And, and there have been lots of different incidents where they've tried to get me in different ways. And um, I don't feel more in danger. In, in a certain way, I'm less in danger by the fact that Putin is being so public about it because it sort of limits some of their opportunities because everyone will know Putin did it. But doesn't stop him from trying to get me. The, the, the most aggressive ways that they try to get me are through extradition and in Interpol as opposed to just knocking me off on the street because if they can get me back to Russia, then they can kill me quite easily with f- full plausible deniability. Whereas, but, you know, West, but how important, I'm sorry, when you say plausible deniability, you believe that Vladimir Putin attempted to kill Sergei Skripal in the UK, correct? I do, yes. And lots of people believe that to be true, right? Yeah. And he must have known, and Skripal was someone who acted in in a uh, intelligence capacity and who's one of the people traded for the, the 10 spies that my office prosecuted back in 2010. And Putin would have to know that if someone like Sergei Skripal was assassinated under suspicious circumstances in the United Kingdom, that blame would fall on him, right? Do you think he cares or not? Like how important is a plausible deniability, really? Well, I, I think that, that he thought he could get away with it in the same way as they thought they could get away with Litvinenko's murder, the one the person who was murdered in London using polonium-210. Um, I don't think that he thought that, that they would find out what the compound was and be able to identify it and then identify it back to Russia. And, and I mean, so so what Putin hates more than anything are consequences. He likes to do things where where he can invade a country and say, it wasn't me, or shoot down a plane and say, how prove it, or dope in the Olympics and say, you can't prove it. And, and he hates getting caught because getting caught has consequences. So what were the consequences of Skripal? Well, all of a sudden, you know, all, all sorts of Russian spies are being kicked out of every country in the West. Oligarchs are losing their visas and there's now they're, they're now seizing properties of oligarchs and life is very complicated. And the US even started um, sanctioning Russian oligarchs. And those are really serious consequences, which which he, he doesn't like. And so I, I think that if he had known what the consequences would be of Skripal, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have tried that. And just to remind people, um, Sergei Skripal and his daughter were poisoned by a Novichok nerve agent while they were in the UK, and both both survived, but just barely. They survived just barely, but they survived, and and they're constantly messing up these assassinations. The same thing with with Litvinenko. They, they tried three times to kill Litvinenko with this radioactive material back in 2006, three attempts before they finally got him. And when they when they did get him, when they figured out what it, that there was polonium 210, they started they went around with their Geiger counter that, that picks up polonium 210, and they like found it was almost like a Hansel and Gretel breadcrumbs. The, the assassins just left everywhere they went, and so by the time. They had figured it out. They could trace it exactly to who the, who did it. They found it in, in the sink of the hotel room where Andre Lugovoy was staying. He's one of the alleged assassins. And 
and they found it on, on his his seat in the airplane flying back to Moscow and all sorts of stuff. People attribute all sorts of evil genius to these Russian, what I call uh, KGB operations, but these are really sort of sloppy, sloppy amateurish stuff that they're doing, and and they get caught and. And every time they get caught, there's consequences and Putin hates that. And so a lot of the stuff that they do, they prefer to do in Russia where they can do it and, and there's no consequence because there can never be an investigation. And so even Boris Nemtsov, Boris Nemtsov was the was a previous first deputy prime minister, became an opposition figure, really going head on against Putin. And he was shot and killed right in front of the Kremlin in February of 2015. And the, the government said, well, this is terrible. And they prosecuted a couple of, of Chechen hitmen and claimed that that, that that was it. But of course, the order probably came directly from Putin, but nobody was ever going to hold him responsible in Russia for this. Can I ask you a question that may seem bizarre, but people have been asking it. Do you think that Putin would ever authorize an action like that, uh, an assassination or a killing on American soil, or is that a bridge too far? I, I'm hoping he won't. <laughs> I'm hoping <laughs> so that- am I. So am I. So are a lot of people. But in other words, are, are there limits? You say, obviously that the easiest way to get that dirty work done is to do it on Russian soil. But they've clearly gone beyond that in the UK. But what about America? Particularly when, you, when he has someone who appears to be oddly and suspiciously a close ally of his in the White House. Well, so, so here's what I would say. First of all, his close ally or what he thinks is a close ally in the White House doesn't control, you know, the, the guys in the FBI who are doing an investigation. But, but people often say to me, Bill, you'd be a lot safer in America than you would be in, in England because look at all the assassinations in England. And my, my response to that is that um, the, the assassinations in England are, are per capita. There's just a lot more Russians living in England and so therefore more of them are being killed over here. I mean th- there was a guy named um, Vladimir Lesson. Vladimir Lesson was the guy who started Russia Today television and all the other propaganda in Russia. And he apparently had like turned over to, to provide evidence to the Department of Justice on some on Russian money laundering. And then he, all of a sudden he was found dead from blunt force trauma at his hotel room in DuPont Circle. Uh, strangely, the Washington, D.C. police labeled it um, not suspicious. <laughs> I don't know how you get blunt force trauma and it's not suspicious. But in, in any case, um, it's not as if these things don't happen in America. And, and I, I guess if Putin felt uh, suitably enraged, he would do it anywhere. I don't think there's any geographic constraint for what he's doing. And there's certainly a lot of Russians who can enter America and do this if if that's their order for him, for them to do. Now, I don't want to increase your level of jeopardy. So I'm not going to ask you what particular precautions you might take for your personal safety. But But do you take precautions and think about doing things one way or another, you know, to protect yourself? Or do you decide, you know what, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. You can't live that way and you just do what you would otherwise do. So the answer is that I take a huge number of precautions. Um, I, I've got Good. all sorts of different protocols um, to make it more difficult, but I, I don't live in fear. Now, if they really want to, if they want to rub some Novichok on my doorknob, I can't, I can't just stop touching doorknobs um, in, in living in fear, but I certainly do things, obvious uh, sort of precautionary measures to make it harder for them to succeed if they try. So, you know, you are fortunate enough to have resources and you got your money out of Russia in time. And so I assume that some of the precautions you take and the protocols you follow, you know, require resources. What about some of the other people on this list? Like how, how worried should some of them be? Like the Senate staffer, Kyle Parker, 
do you give them advice and do you talk as a community, you know, to talk about the potential threat? Well, we, we all talk, um, we're all friends, <clears throat> we're all allies, we all talk together about this stuff. But in this, I mean, in the case of Kyle Parker or the case of Mike McFall, it's truly a shocking situation because so Kyle Parker didn't um, stay up every night until 11 o'clock for two years writing the Magnitsky Act for any glory. You're mentioning his name, I mentioned his name in my book, but you know nobody knows Kyle Parker. He's not doing it for great money. Um, he, he's, he's, he's on a government salary. He did it for service to his country. He did it as an American patriot who has devoted his life to public service. And in return, he's now being targeted by the Russians. And he deserves the full support and protection of the government that he's been serving. And the fact that there was any hesitation on the part of, of Donald Trump to his protection is is the most shocking part of this whole story. Has it ever occurred to you to be less outspoken? Or is that part of how you accomplish your goals? In other words, if you were less of a of a thorn in Putin's side, would that enhance your safety or do you not think about that? Well, I, I think it probably does just the opposite. I think that, that, that if I'm irrelevant, um, it's easier to kill and no one would care. I would care. Um, well, you would care. Thank you. And uh, my friends would care, but the, the world wouldn't um, and wouldn't care nearly as much. And But there's one other uh, overriding factor in this whole thing, which is that the objective that I'm trying to maximize is not my probability of survival. The, the objective I'm trying to maximize is that Vladimir Putin's government, his regime, and him by definition, tortured for 358 days and killed Sergei Magnitsky, who was my lawyer. And Sergei was effectively killed as my proxy. Um, he would still be alive today if he hadn't worked for me. Right. And from that, I have this overriding feeling of responsibility, of guilt, and of duty to go after the people who killed him and make them face justice. It's my um, burning indignation about this terrible, unfixable injustice that drives me every day to try to get some justice for Sergei. And that justice is what's upsetting Putin. Sergei didn't back down in, in far more precarious circumstances than I'm in. He was sitting in their custody. And so it's my duty to him, and I will continue to, to exercise this duty to go after the people that killed him and make sure every last one of them faces justice. Good. And we, and we are glad you do that. And, and one of the things that you do in your work is to, is to travel. When you were last here, there had been five times, I think, that you were detained in some country based on the Russians uh, sort of taking advantage of Interpol. And there was another one in between your last visit to the show and, and today. You were in Spain not too long ago. What happened there? It's a remarkable story. So as I mentioned, one of our tasks is to find the money that Sergei Magnitsky uncovered and was killed over. And we found some of that money, a lot of it, like 30 million euros going to buy properties on the coast of Spain by Russians. And I had taken that evidence and submitted it to a very famous prosecutor in Spain, a man named Jose Grinda. Jose Grinda is one of the most fearless prosecutors in the world, like you. And he had gone after um, Russian gangsters and Russian government officials and, and prosecuted like nearly 50 of them in a previous case. And I had submitted this information to, to Prosecutor Grinda, and he invited me to come to Spain to explain the evidence on the 30th of May. And we made an appointment to meet at 11 a.m. in his offices. So I go to Madrid, to Spain. I arrived the night before on the 29th. And on the morning of the 30th, at about 9.40 a.m., as I'm walking out of my hotel room 
to get breakfast before my meeting with, with the prosecutor. There are two policemen standing outside my door, having just approached. They ask me for my ID. I present it and they compare it with a piece of paper they have. And they say, you're under arrest. And I say, what for? And they say, Interpol, Russia. And you're like, here we go again. <laughs> and so at this point, I, the manager of the hotel was with them. And he said, uh, he said to them in Spanish, can you give this man a moment to pack his bags? And so while I was packing my bags, I surreptitiously tweeted out, urgent, I'm being arrested in Madrid on a, on a Russian Interpol arrest warrant. They're taking me to the police station now. Right. I saw that tweet. A lot of people saw that tweet. I knew when I sent that out, that was going to send things that was going to get people highly uh, agitated. And interestingly, the policeman didn't confiscate my phone. And so so they, they then sort of... Um, take me down, put me into the police car. And, uh, and I thought, you know, maybe people aren't going to believe it. Maybe they'll think it's some kind of hoax. And so I decided to take a picture from the back of the police car. So I took a picture and you can see it there. It's clearly in the back of the police car. And I tweeted that out. And, and to the extent that there was any question about whether I was being arrested or not, that, that, that satisfied that question. And, and then from that moment on, it just, the whole thing went viral. And, and so, so normally when you're arrested in a situation like this, your lawyer calls up the prosecutor and the lawyer tells the prosecutor, you know, this is a big mistake. This is going to, there's, this is going to be a huge scandal. This is wrong. This is bad. And, and the prosecutor says, yeah, everybody says that. And then, you know, over the course of several months, the, the scandal then emerges and then they decide that, that actually he was right. And then they let you out. In the meantime, you, you spent three months or six months sweating in a, in a Spanish prison. But because I had tweeted it out by the time I got to the police station, like, Two hours into it, everybody in the whole world realized that this was like the most shocking uh, miscarriage of justice and scandalous arrest. And Interpol uh, general headquarters called up the Spanish police and said, release this man immediately two hours into it. And I was released. And, and that was the end of the story. And there was, there was literally like 178 missed calls and right. you know, six, 600 emails. And so that, that was pretty, pretty dramatic. And, and thankfully, I was out after two hours and I even got to see – Prosecutor Grinda, I was only 45 minutes late to my meeting and we've carried on with the process. Are there countries that you won't go to because you're concerned about Interpol? Um, yeah, I, I would say that most countries I won't go to. Basically, any country that, that doesn't have a rule of law, I won't go to. And that's most countries in the world. So uh, I'll travel to uh, United States and Canada and you know some of the big, safe European countries, but I'll never go to um, I, I, for example, I, I was invited by members of parliament in Italy about an Italian Magnitsky Act about a month ago. And um, this was after the whole Madrid incident. And, and the, the new prime minister of Italy is is a very um, pro-Putin prime minister. And, I, and so I, I canceled that trip because I didn't want to be a pawn in, in some favor for Putin. Right. Did you assume that all of your communications are being listened to by the Russians? I assume so. And, and, and in fact, in that case, can you, can you stop emailing me, Bill? <laughs> well, I think that, that, that you're, you're not on their, um, party invitation list either. So <laughs> we, we, we I, I don't think you have to worry. In fact, for those listeners who don't know, pre is on the anti, the, the first person on the anti Magnitsky list that the Russians created after the Magnitsky list was formed. So you've got full that validation. Is, is Although I will go to Italy. I will not, go, <laughs> I'll not go to Russia, but I will definitely go to Italy. The, the, the Turks may get you in Italy, so be well, careful. You know, it's funny. I have this personal reason for being interested in the travails of you and Michael McFall and others because there has been talk of trumped up allegations against me 
by Erdogan in Turkey. And so I'm following all this business with Interpol very, very closely myself. Well, Interpol needs to be fixed. There's a serious problem at Interpol, which is that dictatorships and corrupt regimes have the same access to Interpol as civilized countries, and they use it to chase their enemies. And, and, And there's really effectively no consequence if they abuse Interpol. It's entirely possible and and even probable that this happens to Mike McFall and Kyle Parker and these other other um, people in, in in the U.S. government, and it's entirely possible that, that that the Turks can use it against you. And and one of my big advocacy plans is to try to get Interpol reformed, and so that, that these dictatorships can't abuse it because Interpol is a system that should work to catch fugitives. It shouldn't be used by criminal regimes to go after their enemies. If you need help on that, we should let's. Let's talk offline, but don't email me. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, on, I'm on board with the reform of Interpol for those purposes as well. We're, we're almost out of time. So I wanted to ask you, you know, a couple of broader questions. What do you think is the outlook for Russia, for Russian-U.S. relations, for, um, you know, the mission that you have with Magnitsky Act? What, what can we see in the future, given the craziness we've seen so far in recent times at Helsinki and, and other places? Let's start with the the, the the disease. The disease is kleptocracy and corruption. Putin has stolen a lot of money and I would say effectively all the money from his people. So his Russian people are angry. In order for, for Putin to stay in power with a bunch of angry people, he's got to do two things. One is he's got to deflect the anger. And so he's creating problems all over the world. He's invading countries, creating enemies. And the second is he's got to repress his people through dictatorship. And both of those create their own set of problems because the West doesn't like him to create problems and they sanction him. And by sanctioning him, it reduces the economics even further. And by reducing the economics even further, he's got to then create more problems. Putin is is never going to stop creating troubles in the West and it's just going to get worse and worse. And and while there may be this, this strange, inappropriate, cozy relationship between Trump and Putin, there isn't between anywhere else in America and Putin. And, and there, there is absolute seething anger and rage among the people in the uh, congressional branch who, who are not going to tolerate Putin and, and this stuff. And yeah, Though they're not and, as outspoken as you might hope them to be, uh, notwithstanding well, um, that vote. Th- this is all just a brief moment in time. And what I can say is that when the full weight and force of the United States ultimately comes down on Russia, it's going to be devastating. And it may not come while Trump is president. Maybe it does. But it will come because that's the way everybody else feels. And it's not just, it's not just the United States. Um, here where I live in Great Britain, you know, there used to be a huge tolerance of a lot of bad stuff that Russia is doing. There isn't anymore. And it's politically totally unacceptable. And I, I see that everywhere I'm going. And so I think Russia becomes more and more isolated. I don't think that Putin is going to be able to long-term get away with this stuff. I don't think he's a strategist who thinks long-term. And he's doing himself no favors in terms of all this aggressive stuff. But in a certain way, he has no choice because if he wasn't creating all this anger towards the West, they'd be angry at him and he would be out of a job and in jail pretty quickly. But it's a great diversion. Indeed. That's exactly what it is. So, Bill, one thing um, I want to ask you as we end after your last appearance on the show, a lot of people who were moved by the story and believe in the cause that you're fighting wanted to know how they could help uh, and what they could do. What do you say to those people? The best way to help is to be outspoken in social media, in person, uh, wherever possible, 
about the displeasure and, and anger towards this this stuff. That's what moves politicians. That that's what moves policy. And the more people who who sympathize with me and 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 this cause speak out, speak out on Twitter, speak out on Facebook against all the Russian bots. That's the way to keep this process moving in the right direction, so that our leaders understand that that's that's the real mood of of the people and of the country. Those are fine words to end with, Bill. Thank you again for being on the show. I just, I want you to know. I hope that you know this. There are lots of people who are pulling for you who are worried about your safety and want you to be safe, but also want you to continue to do this great work that you're doing. You were inspired by Sergei Magnitsky, but the work you're doing is inspiring lots more folks as well. So I wish you luck, and we'll check in with you soon. If you need any help, don't forget to tweet, and uh, we'll be there for you. Thank you so much. So at the end of the show, I usually tell a story that is in one of two categories. Uh, The first category is something in the news that sort of struck me, and I comment on it. And the other, occasionally, from time to time, is a little bit sort of what I did over the weekend. And today, I want to talk about what I did over the weekend. So my daughter is in music camp. She plays the viola, and she loves classical music. And she's at a music camp that's fairly small, in a small town in western Massachusetts. And on the weekends, parents can come and visit their children. And so my family went to go visit our daughter. And on Saturday evening, uh, at the end of a week of a lot of rain, there was a wonderful concert with lots of people performing, including my daughter, at a converted white barn in the hills of Western Massachusetts. And then on Sunday, all the children at the camp go to a church and they sing and some people perform. The church service began with a Mozart uh, string quartet, which was lovely. So there we are, in the village church of Cummington, uh, and it actually turns out to be a beautiful Sunday. It's an ecumenical service, and people are talking about nature, and there's a portion of the program where churchgoers get to share their concerns, joys, and what they call spirit sightings. One gentleman got up and talked about how grateful he was way back in 1964 when he hitchhiked all the way from Boston to California and back based on the generosity of 128 different drivers who ferried him back and forth across the United States of America and said it was wonderful because every single one of them was a nice person and he made it back alive. Another woman got up to say how she was driving over the weekend after the rain had ended and was surprised by the sight of five turkeys crossing the street, which made people smile. And I smiled even more broadly when another woman in the church yelled, You don't see that in Manhattan, do you? That would be true, depending on your definition of turkey. You're probably wondering where the story is going, what the hell is Preet talking about? And the only point I'm making is, it was about an hour and a half in a small little church where nobody was talking about politics, nobody was talking about the Russia investigation. There was just warmth and appreciation for other things in life. And, you know, during the week, as you follow the news... And I do this podcast, and I care about all these issues a lot, and we had a spirited conversation with Bill Browder this week. It is important to remember that there are things that are apart from politics, apart from Washington, apart from Donald Trump, apart from the House. And some of those things are music, nature, and family. And it's good to be reminded of that. And it was a nice oasis from all the Sturm and Drang we usually hear about during the week. 
And I encourage all of you to find time to experience those things too. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Bill Browder. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send me an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Barube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Vinay Basti, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. <laughs>